I want you to notice that as we turn to our text this morning, beginning in Galatians 1.11, we see very much the same thing that we saw last week. There is a great deal of similarity here in the passage that we are going to be examining. And the similarity is basically this, that the Apostle Paul is speaking up again about another objection. And I want you to know that it's not the same objection. Last week we noticed that the objection in verse 10 is compacted and implied in verse 10, and that is that the Apostle Paul has two Gospels. He has a Gospel that he's received, and then he has a Gospel that he's made up. He has a Gospel that he preaches to Jews when it suits the Jewish audience. He proclaims a Gospel of circumcision and obedience in Jesus Christ. And then when he comes to the Gentiles, he preaches another Gospel, which is really an easy Gospel, a watered-down Gospel, a Gospel that's easy to follow and to believe and understand that as a gospel of faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, for the justification alone. But now as you come into verse 11, you see that uh, really what's happened is Paul is taking up another accusation. Now he begins a whole new series or a whole new train of thought here, beginning with verse 11 that's going to extend all the way to Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. And that is an in-depth, sustained defense of the fact that his gospel is not according to man. Now when he says in verse 11 that his gospel is not according to man, or not a man's gospel, I want to be clear about this, he is not trying to say that he has received uh, his gospel from men in the sense that he has preached in enough places and he's received enough feedback in his preaching among the Gentiles, that he's altering it, like he talked about in verse 10, altering it in such a way that he has calculated that this new watered-down gospel will be able to have a maximum effect in terms of a net increase of converts to Christ's kingdom because it's so easy. When he says his gospel in verse 11 is not a man's gospel, he's saying, I didn't receive it from any man anywhere. Not only did he not receive it through feedback from so-called converts among Gentiles, but he hasn't received it from any earthly master. He's not received it from any earthly seminary. He's not received it from any earthly church. And it seems that the main charge that he now is turning to answer is he has not received his gospel from Jerusalem. I want you to notice as you drop down in our context, beginning, for instance, at verse 17 and following, that there is a sustained emphasis here in our text that he hasn't been to Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. He says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then in verse 18, he says, Then three years after, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's saying again now in these verses that he didn't go up to Jerusalem until three years after his conversion. And the only people he really visited with was Peter and James, the Lord's brother. He didn't sit down with a college of apostles in any seminary in Jerusalem and get instructed in the rudiments and the fundamentals of the gospel. And then beginning in verse 21, he says, Then after that I went into Syria and Cilicia, and none of the churches of Judea knew me by faith. So again, another argument that he had no possible way of receiving his gospel from Jerusalem because he then went into the Gentile world, Syria and Cilicia, proclaiming the gospel. And then you come to chapter 2, and you see that finally he does go up to Jerusalem. He says in verse 1, Then after 14 years 
I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Notice why. Verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running nor had run in vain. Now, notice the logic of the Apostle Paul's argument here. He simply opened up his day planner and he has shown the church now where he has been. He's making himself accountable, as it were, to the Galatians and saying, I want you to understand where I've been for the last 17 years since my conversion. That's not hanging out at Jerusalem. At no point did I sit around in Jerusalem among the college of the apostles and be discipled at their feet. But you see, that is the charge. And, and we can see that not only from the travel itinerary, but notice what he says in verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. That word received there is a very important word because among the rabbis it was technical language to refer to a message which was an authoritative binding message being passed along from master to pupil. You find this word throughout the rabbinical writings and works, and it's a technical term. The Apostle Paul is here rejecting that. He says, at no time did I sit as a pupil under the master's feet in Jerusalem and receive a gospel. He says, I just didn't have the time. We're going to have to delve into these uh, subsequent verses here and the argument that the Apostle Paul makes in order to defend that his gospel didn't come from men because there's just no time for him to receive it from men in Jerusalem. But that's the general point. Paul is refuting this idea that the false teachers are saying is that Paul was, first of all, commissioned as an apostle by the Jerusalem church. And then he received a gospel from the Jerusalem church. But when he went out into the Gentile areas, he set aside that gospel which he had received from Jerusalem and preached his own. Paul says, no way. Now we know that Paul has already been uh, protecting himself, inoculating himself against this already in verse 1. We, we called attention, this is the very first message in the book of Galatians, when he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men. And we pointed out at the time how irregular that was for Paul to go out of his way to make such a sweeping, categorical denial of the fact that his apostleship is from men. But you see now why the apostle Paul is doing that. He is guarding his gospel already in the first verse by showing you that he has not been commissioned or made an apostle by the men in Jerusalem. In fact, he says, I didn't receive it from a man, but through Jesus Christ. And now he's going to take that a step further now to defend his gospel among the Galatians. He says, not only did I not receive an apostleship from Jerusalem now, but I didn't receive a gospel from Jerusalem. He says, now very clearly pointing to the divine origins of his gospel, it's not from men, verse 12 now, I did not receive it, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, he unfolds that just a little bit further, saying that God was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach 
him among the Gentiles. But you see, that is the heart of the Apostle Paul's argument here now, beginning in verse 11 and 12. I did not receive it from a man. My gospel is a divine origin. It is the fruit and the product and the result of divine revelation. The gospel Paul preaches is of divine origin. The nature and the source of Paul's gospel is being clarified here, and that's what we really want to delve into. We've looked at the apparent charge that Paul is clearing himself of, and now he makes a very emphatic denial. Let's just look at it quickly and then go into the very strong affirmation. He says, I want you to know, beginning in verse 11. That's a very serious way of prefacing some remarks. It's almost as if, if you can't translate it into English, at least you can grasp the sense of it. It's as if now he has, uh, he has lowered his voice to indicate, to cue into the reader that he's about ready to say something very solemn. It's kind of like being called into the principal's office at school when you're in trouble. And you're asked to sit down in the seat before the principal, and he drops his voice very lowly, and then he begins to speak with you, and you know you're in trouble. It's as if Paul is using that sort of tone. There's no hint or overtone of trouble in the context. It's just a way for him to cue the reader in to the fact that he's making a very solemn, serious statement here. I want you to know, brothers, he says, my gospel is not a man's gospel. It is not a human. And I want to be very clear about the sense of this. When Paul says the gospel that is preached by him is not man's gospel, the real sense of this in the original is that it's not of a human nature. The nature of this gospel is not human. It's not earthly. It's, it's not of the authority of the resources and the wisdom of men. We'll have to unfold the significance of that later on in the message this morning. But it's also not from a, a human source. Literally in verse 12 it would say, From man I did not receive it. He's asking me again the source or the origin of his message. From man I didn't receive it. But where did you get your gospel, Paul? And he does not leave us in doubt. He says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is perhaps one of the most critical statements in all of Paul's writings. He explains to the church where he gets his gospel. And I want us to be very clear this morning just what gospel that he's talking about. He is talking about justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Remember when he stood up in that synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, and he declares to the people of God there, he says, I want you to know that through this man you can be forgiven of all the sins which the law could not justify you from. And Paul is answering to the church there in Antioch, Pisidia. And the other places that he went, and he proclaimed the gospel of justification by faith alone. He's saying, here is where I got my gospel. I got it through a revelation. I got it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a divine revelation. Verse 16, he says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. And I, I think that it's better to translate this. If you have a footnote, perhaps it even draws this out. But it's in me. First of all, the Apostle Paul's revelation was internal. 
He's pointing to the inwardness of how he received this message. Revelation, the word revelation is very important. It's a, it's a divine unfolding or uncovering of facts and information. And he says, it was in me. It was revealed in me. It was a divine unfolding of facts and information in me. Jesus uses this very word in Matthew 16, 17. He says to Simon, he says, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now you know the context there. They are sitting in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has taken his disciples up to the mountain, away from the, from the ministry and from all of the buzz and action of discipling the crowds and the multitudes, and he's got them now in a quiet place, and, and he's being reflective with them, and, and he knows that there are rumors circulating him. He knows that within the region, that in the region around him, everything is just a buzz because people know that something is happening here with Jesus. And so he asks the questions of his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And Peter answering for the twelve says, Well, some say that you may be Elijah, and others say you may be Jeremiah, and others are saying that you're John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Now notice what's so important about that is the people around them, the people they're ministering to in northern Galilee are seeing Christ and they're hearing His revelation and they notice that there's something very unique and significant and important about Christ. They know this man is a prophet. Notice, notice the high accolades they're giving him by the kinds of names they're using to speculate about who he is. You don't just lightly or casually call somebody Elijah. Everybody knows that you read the Old Testament that Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of all. Remember, he's the one who stands at the top of Mount Carmel calling out the priests of Baal and calling upon them to call fire down from heaven from Baal to consume the sacrifice in this great duel between, between Yahweh and Baal. Everybody knows that Elijah was mightily used. When you call somebody Jeremiah, everybody knows that you're calling somebody a great prophet, a great man of God. You call somebody John the Baptist, you're calling him somebody who speaks with authority and power so much so that the Word of God says everybody in the surrounding regions of Jerusalem and Judea and the countryside and the hillside were flocking out to hear John the Baptist preach. So if you call somebody John the Baptist, you're saying this is a mighty man. But I want you to notice something there that Jesus does not say, well, that's just fabulous that the, that the crowds around me are tracking with me. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't pat himself on the back and say, I knew that my message was getting across. I knew that people were seeing there was something neat and unique and special about me. But you know what his response was? Is that's wrong. They have all of the information. They hear his authoritative proclamation. They hear the revelation which is so new and unique and distinct and fresh when Jesus proclaimed to the multitudes that the kingdom of God is at hand. They see the miracles. And the best they can call him is Elijah? The best they can call him is Jeremiah? Peter says no. You're not Elijah. 
You're not Elijah. You're not Jeremiah. You're not John the Baptist. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. How did Peter know that? Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father in heaven. I want you to notice how Peter knows. This is my whole point in calling your attention to Matthew 16, 17. That Peter knows not just facts about Jesus, but Peter has now been led to understand the, the uniqueness and the distinctness of who Christ is as the very Son of God, not by observation. <laughs> but by a revelation from God on high. God unfolds the facts and the meaning of the facts to the mind of Peter, or Peter would have been just like the multitudes around who are looking at Jesus and marveling, saying, must be Elijah, must be Jeremiah, must be John the Baptist. No, Peter knows far more than that. Peter knows that this is somebody who's utterly distinct and unique as a person. He's the Son of God. And he only knows that, not through observation, not through the powers of intellect, but because God had disclosed the facts to his mind. That's what Paul was saying has happened to him. His gospel is the result of God disclosing facts to his mind. There's another passage which unfolds for us something that has happened here in terms of the transmission of the gospel to the Apostle Paul, and that's found in 2 Corinthians 4.6. You can turn there, you can simply listen. But here, the Apostle Paul opens up to the flap sort of for us to give us an indication of where his gospel has come from. And he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see how the Apostle Paul says he has come to this gospel? This is the revelation in me or to me that verse 16 talks about in Galatians chapter 1. He says, here is how I came to this message in the same powerful, almighty way in which God created the world. He caused the light to shine. Paul is referring back to the first day of creation here where God calls light to shine out of absolute darkness. And the Apostle Paul says, that's the very same thing that happened to me when I received this gospel. God unfolded facts and information to my heart. What is he doing? talks about this shining in his heart. He's certainly referring back. Almost all commentators believe here that the Apostle Paul is using this language of God shining in his heart very intentionally to refer back to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. You remember how the passage goes. It says Paul was walking down the road with his companions and all of a sudden the word of God says immediately a bright light shone from the heavens. You see that? The Apostle Paul is taking the language of that experience now and opening up for us just exactly how he comes to his gospel. And he's saying the very moment when that light began to shine from the heavens externally, something was happening in his heart. It wasn't just a visible light which was blinding. 
But it was an internal light which was illuminating. God was shining in his heart. You see, the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto Paul was first of all an internal matter of God opening up the gospel, opening up the facts and information of the gospel in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to know this morning that the only possible way anyone will ever come to understand the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is if this very process happens to them. God must shine in the heart. Paul speaks about the necessity of that internal Holy Spirit illumination in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. <clears throat> now I want you to know something. Paul does not say that the reason why the natural man does not receive the things of God is because the natural man is stupid. He doesn't say that people apart from Jesus Christ are utterly fools. They have no mental faculties by which they may apprehend and perceive truth. He doesn't say that. You know, as well as I do, the unbelievers can be brilliant. They can have massive intellects. They can have gone through uh, just tremendous amounts of learning. They can have brilliant minds. But Paul says at the end of the day, the thing that separates somebody who truly receives the revelation of God is not somebody who simply got a big library or done a lot of research or who diligently and and vigorously concentrates and meditates upon facts and truth and information. No. He says the way somebody comes to the gospel and receives the truth is by the Holy Spirit opening their mind. Unfolding truth. Although that unfolding of truth is not the same unfold or same nature of the unfolding that happened to Paul in terms of receiving special revelation directly is still the same process. The only way a natural man, an unbeliever, somebody outside of Christ ever begins to believe the gospel is not brilliance, but the Holy Spirit working internally and sovereignly to unfold the truth to the mind. So clearly the Apostle Paul says that at least part of the way in which this message was communicated to him was internally. But now, secondly, and I want you to show, turn with me to Acts chapter 9 to show you how this objective revelation of Christ came to the Apostle Paul. Because this is absolutely foundational and critical. The Apostle Paul here is explaining to us in a very compact way, how his gospel came to him. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is referring us back to his Damascus Road conversion. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The second half of the Apostle Paul's reception of his gospel, the second half of the argument for the divine origin of the Apostle Paul's gospel is not simply that it was a revelation in him. It wasn't simply an unfolding of facts and information and truth to the mind of the Apostle Paul into the depths of his soul. But it's also this objective revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the objectiveness here. It says the light shone. It's outside of him. The text literally says it was all around him. The light was all around him. And it was shining from the heavens. All of the language of the text is pointing to an objective, visible encounter with a man. In the midst of that light, and this is what the people around him did not see, but in the midst of that light, the Apostle Paul saw Christ. And he has a conversation with him. Who are you, Lord? The very first words out of Paul's mouth. Who are you, Lord? See, he sees the risen Christ here in his way to Damascus. It's a visible, it's a visible external, objective experience. And I just want to pause on that a moment before we get into the implications and unfold this in terms of Paul's defense of his own gospel and our own understanding of the gospel is that the Apostle Paul has a visual encounter with Christ. And this is absolutely critical for us to affirm. The Apostle Paul numerous times in his own writings refers back to this experience to prove that he has the credentials to be an Apostle. You know, when they were gathered together in Acts chapter 1 trying to pick some a new apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot. They laid out the credentials necessary to be an apostle. And among those credentials is the fact that that disciple had to have seen the resurrected Christ. And so right away, you narrow the pool of possible prospects for discipleship and apostleship to a very small group of people. Apostle Paul says, I was one of them. 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says, Have I not seen the Lord? Have I not seen the Lord? And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes through a catalog of witnesses that had seen the Lord. He says it was Peter. Then he says it was the rest. Then he says James, the brother of the Lord. And then he says up to 500 brethren at once. And then finally he says in verse 8, As one who was born out of time, he appeared to me. And I want you to know that it's not just some sort of a mystical encounter or experience. That's often how this is explained away by liberal scholars and critics of the Bible. The Apostle Paul was just sort of having a hallucination. If the rest of the disciples and Peter and James and the 500 had hallucinations, which is one of the arguments for, uh, rather against the actual historical, physical resurrection of Christ, how much more did the Apostle Paul have an hallucination? Three years after Christ ascended into heaven, he appears visibly and personally to the Apostle Paul. And that's the explanation given that Paul just had an hallucination, a dramatic, psychological, cathartic experience where he thinks he sees something that he doesn't. But the word there, appeared, is the very same word that is used of Christ appearing physically and personally to all of his disciples. Paul is placing himself 
on the same footing as the rest of those disciples by using that verb, appeared. He's saying, my visual, personal encounter with Christ is exactly on the same par and level as the rest of the disciples who are now apostles. But you know what's interesting here? Is that the Apostle Paul says, this is where I got my gospel. In that brilliant flash of revelation of Jesus Christ personally meeting Paul in the midst of this blinding, bright, shining light on the road to Damascus, Paul says, that's where my gospel came In a flash, in an instant, the Lord objectively presents himself to Paul and in a flash, and in an instant, he not only presents him to his senses and to his eyesight and his perception, but he also presents himself to his mind and unfolds the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to the heart of the Apostle Paul. Right there in that instance, the whole message of the Gospel fits together like a puzzle in Paul's mind. And as he sat there in blindness for three days, he just played that over and over and over and over again. And as he did that in his mind, the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over unfolded the truth and the significance and the implications of that to him. And I want to show you three things that the Apostle Paul learned about his gospel from this appearing of Christ to him on the road to Damascus. And the very first thing that he learned about this Christ and his gospel is that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. You know, he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, that this revelation was not only a revelation of Jesus Christ, but he says God revealed his Son. <coughs> that is prominent in the Apostle Paul's thinking. He revealed his Son. But I want to show you here from the text in Acts chapter 9 that the divinity of Christ is the very first thing he learns about Jesus. As he sees this brightness of the revelation of Jesus Christ externally and visibly to him, the word of God says in verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? You understand that? And he's not talking about the Father. He's very specifically talking about Jesus here. Because it says in the next line, and he said, that is Christ said, I am Jesus. Jesus' first piece of his revelation to the Apostle Paul is, I am Lord. I am God. That this was so powerful and so clearly and vividly impressed upon the mind of the Apostle Paul is evident from verse 20. Where it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Notice the very first thing that the Apostle Paul is impressed with when this gospel is revealed unto him, that there is very something very unique about the Jesus Christ whom he is persecuting. He is the Son of God. He is divine. That the very
very heart of the Apostle Paul's preaching of Christ is the proclamation of a divine Christ through the Son of God. Listen to how he puts it in Romans 1 verse 3 when he talks about the fact that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. Notice how he immediately describes that gospel. He says that gospel is concerning his Son. You see, the person who is the great actor in the redemptive events is the Son of God. And that's absolutely critical and foundational to the gospel. You know, you could proclaim Jesus Christ as the obedient servant who kept all the commandments of God. You can proclaim Jesus Christ as the obedient servant who innocently was condemned and hung on a cross. You could even claim, I suppose, theoretically, that Jesus Christ, as a good servant, was resurrected from the dead by the power of God and still missed the entire point of the gospel and believe a false gospel and go to hell as a heretic if you don't believe He is truly the Son of God. You see, the great dividing line between the Christs of the false gospels and the heretics and the schismatics throughout the history of the church, first of all, turns on this very, very crucial component part. He's not just a man, but he's God. He is the very Son of God. The Canons of Dort says, the divinity of Christ is essential to the gospel. Disqualification is necessary to constitute him a savior for us. So you can't have a gospel without a divine Messiah. The Athanasian Creed, at the very end of that great creed, which expounds for us the divinity of the three persons of the Trinity, but most particularly Jesus Christ, says at the very end, except a man believe these things, he can't be saved. How wonderful. That in Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, that very instance in which he receives his entire gospel, he gets the whole thing in one shot and he gets it right from the start. Christ is God. But the second thing that he learns from this is that Jesus is Messiah. It doesn't exactly say that here in this verse, or at least in the interchange between uh, Christ and Paul. But notice what he says as he it continues this summary of his preaching in verse 22 of Acts chapter 9. It says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. And all throughout the snapshots and summaries of the Apostle Paul's preaching throughout the book of Acts, you find this running like a, frame, a refrain that Paul was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now that's the whole heart of the argument. Why was the Apostle Paul, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 1, breathing out murderous threats against the church, or rather that's 9-1. It describes Paul's activity saying, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Why was Paul doing that? Was Paul doing that because he did not believe in a Messiah? Of course not. 
as a learned rabbi, as one of the great teachers from Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul fully and wholeheartedly believed in a Messiah because all the prophets spoke about it. What he didn't believe is that Jesus was the Messiah. But all the proof that the Apostle Paul needed for that was that dramatic, personal, objective encounter with the risen Christ in the middle of the bright, blinding light in the middle of the road to Damascus. In one fell swoop here, the Apostle Paul not only learns that Jesus is the very Son of God, he also learns that Jesus is the Messiah. In just one simple encounter, God was revealing His Son externally, and God was shining in the heart of the Apostle Paul, and the result of that is that the lights begin to go off in Paul's head. This is no sectarian Messiah. These people of the way are not a bunch of crazy people. They believe in a real Messiah. They believe accurately and biblically and factually and truthfully that Jesus is the Christ. But you see, what about what we often consider the very heart of the gospel? I want you to remember what gospel was the Apostle Paul preaching to the Galatians. And it's very true that if you go back to Acts 13, you go back to Acts 14, and you see whatever we can glean from those passages there about Paul's preaching of the gospel, that it was a message of grace, it was a message about Christ, but above all the definitive defining feature and distinct mark of the Apostle Paul's proclamation of the gospel is justification by faith alone. And the thing that makes us marvel, I suppose, for a moment, is that it seems like maybe Paul has overstated where he gets his gospel from in Galatians chapter 1. You think about it, how in the world, from one visual encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, who is presenting himself in the midst of a bright shining light, that all of a sudden, not only the lights go off and the bells begin to ring in his head, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah, but how does he come up with justification by faith alone? But Paul's not overstating his case. Paul's not overstating his case when he says, this is the divine origin of my gospel, this Damascus Road experience. Not only did I learn that he's Lord, not only did I learn he's Messiah, but I learned justification by faith alone. And here is the key. Who does he meet? You think about that. Who does he meet? He doesn't just meet a man. He doesn't meet just somebody who's Lord. But the timing. Christ was crucified three years ago. And yet, he's standing before me alive. You see, it's in the seeing of the resurrected Christ that the entire gospel comes together. Why? Because the whole point of the fact of the resurrection is not simply that a dead man rose from the grave, so send it into Ripley's, believe it or not. It's 
It's important that he rose again from the dead to show that he conquered death. But what do you learn from the fact that he rose again from the dead? And what you learn from the fact that he rose again from the dead is that he is righteous. Because only the righteous will see life. Isn't that what's just full? That, that, that message is, is all throughout the Psalms and the prophets and the Old Testament revelation. It's the righteous who will see life and live in the land. The only way somebody could be resurrected from the dead and stay alive eternally and be immortal is if they passed the probationary test of the covenant of works and kept all of God's commandments. And when they do that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the grand demonstration of God's acquittal of Christ. When he goes up under the cross, he carries all of our sins. He receives the outpouring of divine wrath for our sins. But the resurrection is the proof that all the charges were not due to what Christ had done. He was righteous. He was righteous, and the fact that he is righteous means that he earned life. God vindicates the righteousness of Christ as the Messiah. And all of a sudden, the whole gospel of justification by faith alone fits together now in Paul's mind. He will spend the rest of the book of Galatians unfolding. He will spend the entire book of Romans unfolding it. He unfolds it in every stop along the way. In every catechism, he passes on to the church wherever he visits. He spends his time talking about the great fact of the gospel which he received from this Damascus Road encounter that not only is Jesus the Son of God, not only is Jesus the Christ, but Jesus is the justifier. The righteous one now gives us his righteousness. And because the path to eternal life is the reception of the righteousness of Christ. And it stands to reason that God doesn't need our righteousness. God doesn't need your righteousness. God doesn't need your law keeping. God doesn't need your obedience to his commandments to add to your righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. And hopefully... Like 2 plus 2 add up to 4, your righteousness and Christ's righteousness will add up to justification. No, Christ is righteous. That's the point of the resurrection. And if Christ is righteous, then his righteousness is your righteousness. And if you have Christ's righteousness, God doesn't need yours, thank you. So the Apostle Paul did not change a gospel that he received from men. The Apostle Paul is not preaching a home gospel to the Judaizers and the Jews and the synagogues of Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. Christ plus circumcision plus obedience equals justification. And to the Gentiles, just Christ equals justification. Changing them back and forth, altering the message you received from Jerusalem. No, the Apostle Paul says, I cut all of that out because I never got commissioned by Jerusalem and I never received anything from Jerusalem. My entire calling comes from God and my entire gospel comes from the revelation of Christ to me on the Damascus Road. And I'm not dependent on anybody, nor is my gospel. And I don't alter it. It's the same every place I go. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
and justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's Paul's defense. That's part one of Paul's defense. It's going to be a lengthy defense, and for the next several weeks we'll be examining his defense. But what do we learn from this this morning as we come to our conclusion of our message? What do we learn from Paul's autobiographical defense of the divine origins of his gospel? And the first thing that we learn from that is that this gospel and this revelation is so very different from all the revelations claimed by all the mystics and spiritual gurus present today. The most widely popular selling book that's non-fiction religious literature is called Conversations with God. Neil Donald Walsh describes in that, in the very opening of that book, the process of that revelation that he claims in there is a conversation between him and God for a contemporary day. He says, as I scribbled out the last of my bitter, unanswerable questions and prepared to toss my pen aside, my hand remained poised over the paper and abruptly the pen began moving on its own. And what followed were three of the books which are the hottest nonfiction religious seller out there in the market today. But notice, it's just this mystical encounter between some man in a closet somewhere with no witnesses, no observable encounter or experience with God. How different is Paul's? He says, I received my entire revelation with witnesses standing around me who actually had been overcome by the light and blinded by the light so much so that they fell on their faces before the Lord and the brightness of His glory radiating from the heavens around Him. But Paul had an objective, personal encounter with God with witnesses around to verify. He's not sitting in a dark motel room somewhere, angry, throwing crumpled pieces of paper on the ground, bitterly firing off questions to a God that he can't stand. Paul may have been persecuting the church out of ignorance and blindness. He doesn't profess to have some self-appointed message which he came up with out of his own strength and resources. Nobody witnessing the Apostle Paul had a revelation which was both objective and internal at once. And that's the way all the revelation of the scriptures are. The revelation of scripture is God coming to his appointed prophets and apostles and expounding to them objective historical events of which he is the center. It's not just some sort of spiritual talk, mindless spiritual talk from the heavens. Answering all of our personal little questions that that we couldn't figure out on our own, couldn't understand why God was doing these things. No, the revelation of the scriptures is not like that at all. The revelation of the scriptures is objective, external, covenantal, dealing with real historical events that are saving in character and nature. The second thing we learn here from Paul's autobiographical defense of his gospel is really what you see Paul saying negatively here. He says that the gospel which was preached by me is not a man's gospel. That's a very important statement the Apostle Paul makes there because the gospel is inaccessible to men. 
the gospel is entirely inaccessible to men. Theodore Beza, in a treaty called The Two Parts of the Word of God, Law and Gospel, in this treatise, describes the uniqueness and inaccessibility of the gospel in contrast to the law when he says, what we call law, when it is distinguished from gospel, is taken for one of the two parts of the word, is a doctrine whose seed is written by nature in our hearts. He goes on to say, the law is natural to man. God has engraven it in his heart from creation. Every human being is in touch with the law of God. You can't go anywhere and escape the law of God. You cannot close your eyes and plug your ears and be beyond the testimony of the law. You can't find your way hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from a church and a Bible and still beyond the reach of the law because everywhere you go, the law is with you in your heart and externally around us in nature. It's woven into the very fabric of reality which we experience and encounter on a constant moment-by-moment -moment basis. Law is always there preaching at you. Anybody can come up with law. But now listen to what he says about the gospel. He says, what we call the gospel, good news, is a doctrine which is not at all in us by nature, but which is revealed from heaven and totally surpasses natural knowledge. You know that to be true. Why do you go around beating yourself up every day? Why do you go around accusing yourself of all the the things that you're doing wrong? Why do you always walk around moping around wondering whether you're really saved and wondering whether you're really a Christian? And how could I be a Christian because I see all the sins in my life? How in the world could I really be a Christian? The law is constantly with you, constantly reminding you that you have fallen short of the glory of God and that you're a sinner. It's always there. But you know what's not always there? It's the still, small calming, peaceful voice of the gospel. What's not always there is Christ speaking, comforting, peaceful, gracious, merciful words to you because the gospel is not in your heart. And that's why we never let a Sunday pass here at All Saints Reformed Church without reading from the gospel. Because you don't have the gospel with you. The gospel is a revelation of God contained in His Word which is completely beyond the reach of natural man. The gospel only comes to us when God in His sovereignty and mercy unfolds it to the minds of men sovereignly to the power of His Holy Spirit. You see, you have the gospel God had to take all the initiative. God had to work sovereignly. God had to beat down our resistance. God had to break through all of our excuses. God had to overcome all of our fear and shame and hiding from Him. Because every time we came into the light of the law of God, we were exposed for what we were. But you see, God overcomes all of that when He comes with His gospel. 
He says, it's okay. You should believe everything that the law is telling you about yourself. You should believe that. You should believe you're miserable. You should believe you're fallen. You should believe you're worthy of judgment. You should believe you're worthy of condemnation. You should feel terrible. But because of what Christ has done, because of his death on the cross, because of his perfect obedience, because of his resurrection from the dead, because I have accepted his sacrifice, I'm not angry. All of your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. And you have eternal life. That's a message which is out of this world. That's a message which is beyond the mind of men to come up with. It's purely a revelation of God. So what is the autobiographical defense of Paul's divinely communicated gospel mean to us is that we don't have a gospel that is according to men. Praise God that the accusation made against him is not true. It's not from men. We don't have a gospel of Judaizers, of mystics, of New Age gurus, or self-appointed spiritual prophets. We have a message not built on conditional promises of our own obedience to God's commands. We have a message that has been divinely and sovereignly communicated internally and externally to the mind and heart and experience of the Apostle Paul infallibly interpreted and hit by the Holy Spirit and communicated through His Holy Scriptures. And that message is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That message is that Jesus is the Christ. And that message is justification by faith alone. That's Paul's autobiographical defense, divine organs of his gospel. May God help us to believe it, to receive it with faith, to lay it up in our hearts. In Christ's name. Amen. Yeah.